a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, my fellow wrong thinker, and welcome to the show. By the way, lines are open, 801-331-8113, just in case you have something you need to get off your chest. Going to spend some time today talking about uh, civil disobedience. It's kind of a hot topic only because it's uh, kind of being forced on, well, it's not being forced on us. We're being placed in a position where if you're serious about maintaining your freedoms and preventing tyranny, at some level, you have got to be willing to engage in civil disobedience. This is really hard for a lot of folks. And, and I guess there are a couple of different reasons. I'm going to spitball and give my best reasons. But if you want to add your thoughts, 801-331-8113. Look, most people at some level equate uh, being good with, you know, being obedient. You, you play by the rules. I, I follow the rules. I mean, one of the big controversies over the 2020 election is, hey, some of these states and some of the election officials didn't actually follow the rules. So by default, that would make them bad, right? That's bad. We have those rules for a purpose. They're there to make sure that things are fair and above board and somebody didn't follow them. And now look at the doubts, look at the anger and angst that uh, that is a result of this. But following rules can also reach a point of diminishing returns when the rules are calculated to put you into a type of bondage. And I realize that's pretty harsh language for some folks because they're going to think, Brian, you'll think anything is bondage. No, I'm pretty sensitive to the stuff. But look, the, the main difference between me and people who say, I don't see what the big deal is, is I've spent a fair amount of my life, at least half of my life, really deeply studying to know what my rights are, why they are essential, why government exists. Hint, it's, a, it's to protect those rights. And why when it, when it oversteps its bounds and starts to infringe on those rights, that's not good. And it's not good if I see them infringing on somebody else's rights. And I hope I'm being consistent and speaking up when I see that happen, too. It doesn't have to be my ox being gored for it to be a problem. But I want to start with some thoughts on civil disobedience. It's a time-honored tradition for resisting tyranny. For those of us who practice it, most often it's a matter of conscience. And I know one of the most obvious examples of this would be, you know, those who refuse to, refuse to wear the mask. Now, I'm going to take this in kind of a dangerous direction just because I know that this is going to make people uncomfortable, given that uh, it was just a little over a week ago that uh, one of the uh, general authorities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints made some public statements, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he was saying, but essentially he was saying, when you wear your mask, you are engaging in a Christ-like act of love for your fellow man. And of course, the press kind of ran with this. So are you saying then that this is the official position of the church? Wearing the mask is part of being Christ-like? And I believe the answer was yes, or at least it was intimated that that's, that's what we're getting at. But here's where, here's where I struggle with this. I'm one of those oddballs, and, and look, there's, there's absolutely a chance I could be wrong about this, 
but I'm one of those people whose conscience is warning me in unmistakable terms, don't be so quick to wear the mask. And it's not out of health concerns. I'm not afraid that, well, if I wear the mask, I'm going to breathe my own recirculated air and germs and it's going to make me sick. It's a matter of conscience. And, and I wish, you know, look, how many times have you wished you could just tone down your conscience? Hey, quiet, you. <laughs> I'm having fun here. And your conscience is going, you shouldn't do that. This is one of those times where I'm like, I wish I didn't hear it, but I hear it. And what my conscience is saying to me is that mask for some is going to be an outward sign of compliance, of submission. And my conscience is saying, don't be one of those people who's so quick to submit or to comply with something that may be unreasonable and actually a test case to see how far you can be pushed in the direction of abandoning what remains of your liberties. Now, I understand that's a big jump, and I don't expect everybody to agree with that. That's what my conscience is telling me, though. And if your conscience is telling you something different, then I would suggest you follow what your conscience is saying. Why is it so important? Because your conscience is your constant companion through life. Your conscience is the only thing that you will carry with you throughout all of your life. And when you die, it will accompany you into whatever follows. You don't get to take your car. You're not going to take your money. Your friendships, your, your relationships, yeah, they're going to be on hold for a little while. But you know what will be there at your side? Your conscience. And hopefully you're going to be on good terms. Now, I bring this up because this, this is such a touchy issue. And, and it's even tougher when you have religious leaders that are, are providing top-down pressure of, well, we think it's the right thing to do and we want people to do it. And, and sometimes that religious pressure is very intense. I won't name names, but I have a friend who was serving as a bishop. He was the leader of a congregation within my church. And while he didn't, he never told his congregation members, now you ignore these, uh, these mandates, you ignore, you know, the, the, instructions that church leaders had given him about having people mask up when they come to church. But he, his conscience too was telling him, don't wear the mask. Don't be one to show that you're willing to, to yield this part of your personal freedom. Now you can see the difficult position that puts him in. And it did. It put him to in a position where eventually he was called before some higher ups and told you either have to start wearing the mask or we're going to release you from your calling as a bishop. And I don't know how to put this into into terms that people who are not LDS can understand, but it's that's a pretty serious calling. It's a, it's a major commitment of time and effort and responsibility. It's not just a casual thing like I'm the scoutmaster and well, oh, you want to release me? Go ahead. You know, he has serious responsibility and stewardship but in the end he ended up being released and it was hard but he said my conscience is clear and i think in the end that is what matters not whether he was in compliance caller welcome to the show yeah the mask is a mind rape it is just a test to see what we will do for free without even breaking a sweat i was so discouraged I went up to my parents' house in Idaho, Pocatello area, for Thanksgiving. And I go into town to get some car parts with my dad, and and he starts putting on his little Pancho Villa bandana around his face. 
you know, that won't keep out a flatulent, but, and I'd never seen him do that before, and it, it turned my stomach, I, I, I felt ashamed, I felt embarrassed, I said, I, I, anyway, and we, I try not to argue, we're definitely not on the same page as far as compliance goes, and belief and all that, he's much more comfortable than me, but I just get out and, sh- you know, shake my head to myself, and Nobody cares. Go into the store. Nobody cares. And if they do, so what? I've only run into three problems in however long this has been going on. It's not law. Those gangsters don't even go to work until next month. So it's nothing. It's all fiction. Well, everybody's got a different line in the sand, Jared. You know, I mean, I I know where yours is. Yours is very clear. Um, I, I won't hassle anybody who's wearing the mask because I, I've seen some genuine fear in people's eyes that, uh, that it's, oh, yeah. that's theirs to oh, deal yeah. with. And, and whether I think it's rational or not, it's not my place to set them straight. But but I agree. You shouldn't be molested. I don't think they should be molested. Um, but somehow this this mask thing and the fear that accompanies it has got people feeling like, well, I have license to go after you and to, to shame you and to to gin up a mob to make you comply. Well, that's, they're really just afraid to confront the police state themselves, so they justify in their mind that the cops are right. So, And, and who doesn't want to be on the winning team? Yeah. Everybody wants to tell it's your turn to get in the boxcar. So yeah. people wave those blue line flags, and, oh, it's crazy. It's just, it's just cuckoo. It's got to be near 12 o'clock. Cuckoo. Well, hey, thanks for, thanks for weighing in. Keep fighting the good fight. Oh, we haven't started fighting yet, but yes, sir. Okay, well, mentally, or at least in the idea of arenas, I think I think the battle is in full swing, and I, I consider myself a warrior, although I'm not high speed or low drag. I'm just a guy who believes strongly in certain things and will do my best to promote those things. But civil disobedience, it has a place, even though some people will wag their fingers and disapprove. When we come back, we're going to talk about how civil disobedience not only preserves and safeguards your freedoms, but actively helps prevent tyranny. Fantastic article that a friend shared with me and a few other friends this morning. I'm going to hit some of the highlights with you just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us. The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about civil disobedience. A friend sent me this article this morning. It's actually a video. But there is a transcript of the video, and and I'm going to have links to both in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is from Academy of Ideas, How Civil Disobedience Safeguards Freedom and Prevents Tyranny. And it starts with a quote. And if you're inclined to slam your mind shut, I'm going to ask you, please, 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 put a toe in the door. Don't slam it just yet. But consider what is being said here. This is from Primo Levi from The Truce. Quote, Monsters exist but they are far too few in number to be truly dangerous. The most dangerous monsters are ordinary men and women ready to believe 
and obey without asking questions. Let that sink in for just a second. Think about what that says. And the article says, you know, is a peaceful and prosperous society dependent on strict obedience to the laws and dictates of the state? Is voting the only proper means to show displeasure with the commands of politicians and bureaucrats? While school systems and the mainstream media try to indoctrinate us with an obedient mindset, and while politicians desire an almost blind obedience from the populace, history tells a different story about the value of always doing what we are told. And in the video, they discuss why obedience, not disobedience, is the greatest threat to mankind, while also examining how civil disobedience keeps a society free. Now, while the Grimke sisters, famous for their work with abolitionists and women's suffrage movements of the 19th century, uh, put it this way, quote, The doctrine of blind obedience and unqualified submission to any human power, whether civil or ecclesiastical, is the doctrine of despotism. That's from Sarah Grimke. And the article reminds us in the 20th century as millions upon millions of bodies piled up in socialist and fascist countries. It became evident to all those who cared to look that obedience can kill. In the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, Cambodia, China, North Korea, it wasn't rebellion or disregard for law that sent hundreds of millions to an early death, but the fact that in such countries people obeyed too much. They obeyed laws that were immoral and accepted commands from politicians and bureaucrats that were socially destructive. The horrific experiences in these countries taught us a very important lesson, but one that has quickly been forgotten. Sometimes it's obedience, not disobedience, that's the true crime. As Peter Ustinov wrote in a 1967 article in The New Yorker, for centuries, men were punished for having disobeyed. At the Nazi trials of Nuremberg for the first time, men were punished for having obeyed. And the repercussions of this precedent are only now beginning to make themselves felt. But even if laws that lead to the suffering of innocent people and to the destruction of a society should be disobeyed, this proves very difficult after a country has descended into full-blown totalitarianism. For with totalitarianism comes an enslavement of the population, first an enslavement of the minds of the masses through incessant propaganda, and then a physical enslavement through mass surveillance, police forces, and a judicial system whose main job is to keep people in a state of submission. Under these oppressive conditions of the all-powerful centralized state, disobedience takes a heroic act of will as stepping out of line can easily be paid for with one's life. What makes disobedience even more challenging under totalitarianism is that when the state controls all, econ controls all rather, economic activity grinds to a halt. This leads to shortages in life's necessities, and when one is hungry, finding food, not resisting tyranny, is actually in the front of their mind. As Theodore Dalrymple explains, quote, In totalitarianism, shortages of material goods, even of necessities, were not a drawback, but a great advantage for the rulers. The shortages were not accidental to the terror, but one of its most powerful instruments. Not only did shortages keep people's minds strictly on bread and sausage and divert their energies to procuring them so there was no time or inclination left over for subversion, but the shortages meant that people could be brought to inform, spy, and betray each other very cheaply. Now, the article says disobedience, therefore, is not an antidote 
to full to full blown tyranny. Disobedience, rather, is a preventative measure to tyranny, but to be effective at returning freedom to a society at risk of losing it. Disobedience must endure widespread support. In other words, it must take the form of civil disobedience. When an individual practices disobedience in a solitary manner, this is referred to as dissidence or conscientious objection. Civil disobedience, on the other hand, occurs when a group of people disobey and in a public manner. This mass noncompliance sends a message that no politician wants to hear. The people no longer fear them, no longer respect them, and will no longer obey them. The current form of governance has been deemed no longer acceptable, and in contrast to a protest whereby a populace asks for its freedom back, with civil disobedience, a populace begins to take its freedom back. I like that distinction. Here's how, how Murray Rothbard explains. Mass nonviolent resistance as a method for the overthrow of tyranny stems directly from the fact that all rule rests on the consent of the subject masses. For if tyranny rests on mass consent, then the obvious means for its overthrow is simply withdrawal, mass withdrawal of that consent. The weight of tyranny would quickly and suddenly collapse under such a nonviolent revolution. But the article asks, how can people, or enough people for that matter, be awakened to the necessity of disobeying laws that are socially destructive? In other words, what leads to a movement of civil disobedience that can defeat tyranny? Well, one possible tactic is to use reason, logic, and argumentation to make the masses aware of the deceptions, lies, and manipulations being used to herd them into totalitarianism. This approach is based on the notion that if the truth were presented and the propaganda deconstructed, most people would rise up in defiance and cast off their chains. But an appeal to reason and evidence only works on minds that are open and receptive. And when tyranny is rising, ever fewer minds exist in this state. Rather, fear, confusion, anger, and uncertainty run rampant, and these emotions can easily trump the power of reason. Carl Jung in Civilization in Transition, wrote, the mass crushes out the insight and reflection that are still possible within the individual. Rational argument can be conducted with some prospect of success only so long as the emotionality of a given situation does not exceed a certain critical degree. If the effective temperature rises above this level, the possibility of reasons having any effect ceases, and its place is taken by slogans and a chimerical and chimerical wish fantasies. That is to say, a sort of collective possession results, which rapidly develops into a psychic epidemic. Holy cow! I'm just I'm I'm laying those words up against what I've seen happen uh, with the, with the wearing of masks and the fear that people are feeling right now over COVID. I think uh, Carl Jung may have been onto something here. This observation that a people can become immune to logic and reason was shared by the writer Eli Wiesel, who upon visiting the Soviet Union wrote, Logic will not help you here. You have your logic, they have theirs, and the distance between you two cannot be bridged by words. What is needed more than words and arguments are individual dissidents who act as the motivating examples for the larger movements of civil disobedience. For the power of example has always reigned supreme in its ability to influence others. When people see that someone is willing to take risks in defense of their beliefs and that their words are congruent with their actions, this lends more credence to their position. 
And while the example of a dissident may not awaken those most blind to the chains of control that are being placed around them, it can exert a strong influence on the many who are on the fence as to what to think and how to act. But without an intrepid few willing to be the example for others, a sort of prisoner's dilemma exists. No one is willing to be the first to disobey, and so everyone sits by idly hoping that others will save society for them. Is this striking some nerves within your heart? We'll be back. We'll talk more about civil disobedience, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We are talking about civil disobedience. There's a line in this article from Academy of Ideas about how civil disobedience safeguards freedom and prevents tyranny. And I want to I want to go off on just a little tangent for a moment here. It says, and while the example of a dissident may not awaken those most blind to the chains of control that are being placed around them, it can exert a strong influence on the many who are on the fence as to what to think and how to act. This has been a really exceptional year in that it it has uh, tried all of us in a number of different ways. I don't know anybody who hasn't felt like, oh, yeah, this was a struggle in some sense. I've had more people approach me, and I don't know why they're approaching me, because I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I've had more people approach me and just say, hey, what do you think about this? And I think they're just sincerely trying to get my take. You know, is there, is there something, you know, that you can offer some insights or what's your take on this? Look, I do the same thing. There are other people whose point of view I trust. And I just, you know, tell me what you're thinking about this. So I'm, I'm very honored when someone does this. I've had a lot of folks ask me, what can we do? What can we do? Because they sense that we're building towards a climax in this fourth turning crisis. And I mean, it's, it's looking like it, it could be a doozy when you keep in mind that uh, most of the crises that define a fourth turning are things like financial upheaval, war, and civic decay. I think we've got, uh, we've got a lot of that on the agenda and war is the one that really hasn't arrived. Even though we have actions going on all over the world we're talking something big, civil war, general, general uh, global war, like the World War I, World War II, that kind of stuff. Scary. And I want you to know, I, put, I have put a lot of thought, I continue to put a lot of thought to this on a daily basis. Not that I'm convinced I'm going to come up with the answer and everybody will look at me and say, good for you. It's more along the lines of, uh, I, I'm asking God, hey, what can I do? There's so much that's not under my control, and I mean, I can sit back and I can feed on the fear and I can feed on the anger, but I don't think that's productive. I don't think it improves my situation or anybody else's. And the thought that keeps coming to me as far as, well, what can I do? What should I be doing in the building crisis that's going on around us? And the answer is very much like what this line I just shared with you says. I've, I've been impressed that the, the, the most important thing that I can do is really button down 
and be the best individual that I can be. Let me explain what that means. Really live up to what I profess to believe. And for me, that's going to encompass, you know, there's some pretty lofty ideals. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That means I'm going to have to love my enemies. I'm a person who believes in being fair and treating others the way I want to be treated. So I got to live up to the golden rule. I believe in being honest. I believe in being steadfast. And if you, if you think I'm saying well, these are things that all come naturally or easy to me, nope. <laughs> I have to work on them just like anybody else. They, and and there, are, there are obstacles and there are temptations that come along that, that constantly try to direct me off path. But I really believe for those who are concerned about what can I do, what can I do, this is the time to refine yourself and to get your house in order. I'm talking your heart first and foremost. So that when those people who are sitting on the fence, the ones who are actively looking around going, oh, this is scary. What do I do? What do I do? We have to be the kind of individuals that they can look to and see, not just by our words, but by our actions. That we are bearers of light. Doesn't mean we're right. It doesn't mean we're better than anybody else, but just that we understand something that they're beginning to grasp. We have to be the kind of people that they would trust. That they would actually seek out. That's a tall order. And I'm not going to lie. It scares the crap out of me. It, it's, it's, that's scarier than, you know, getting the impression, well, now's the time to, you know, mount up and <laughs> go ride in, into battle. Nope. This Because that's a flight of fancy. And, and those who are polishing their guns right now and waiting, waiting for the balloon to go up, look, I wish you luck. But anger and violence and the power of the sword alone, they're not going to cut it. We have to be the kind of people that those in distress would look to and say, this person is solid. This person is standing on solid ground. Now, for me, a big part of that is going to be my faith in God. That's, that's where I find solidity. That's where I find something that's solid enough I can hang my hat on it. And it's not that I'm trying to convert everybody over to a particular religious mindset. I just, that's, that's where I stand because that's where I find strength. And it's not just, you know, something I hope, I hope God's out there. It's something that I know for myself. And so I feel very comfortable in, in putting my trust there. But I'm just going to suggest if, you, if you're looking for a way to, to exert your influence, that's, that's how it's got to be. We've got to be the kind of people that bring truth and light to those who are looking for it. And I have to be very clear here. Not everybody wants it. <laughs> Not everybody is looking for it. And in fact, there are some people, it will draw some people to you who are threatened by it. The demons that they are battling are so threatened by the fact that you represent something good. It will make you a target. And there's some pretty ugly stuff going on out there. Um, Christian Watson, who hosts uh, the Pensive Politics podcast on the Fed by Ravens Media Network, brilliant young man. I love this guy. 
I think his heart is in the right place. I think his message is is on target. And yet he's very much a work in progress, as we all are. I mean, he's learning, he's growing, he's pushing and and and, and enlarging his own understanding. Recently, his grandmother passed away. In fact, I think it was Thanksgiving Day. She passed away from COVID. And because Christian's active on Twitter, that exposes him to the Twitter mob. And sure enough, as soon as he posted something about, hey, my, my grandmother passed away today due to COVID you know, complications, the Twitter mob, the haters, went to work digging up every old tweet they could find. Well, look here, he wasn't very happy about this mask mandate and, and just heaping this. It serves you right. It serves you right. You, this is called your just desserts. And you get the picture. Ugly, nasty. Let us rub salt in your wounds. Let us stand here and mock you as you mourn. Now, he wasn't out there trying to impose anything on anybody. He was expressing opinions, which unfortunately opened you up to criticism. But boy, some the Twitter mob, whoo, they are they are vicious. And so at some level, if you're going to try to be the kind of person who is a dissenter, someone who who is civilly disobedient, someone who sets the example that others look to and say, wow. I think I could do that too. I think I should do that. Just understand, you will pay a price. You're going to suffer for your beliefs. And if you don't have any beliefs that are that are worth suffering for, get better beliefs. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. You, you may, Your beliefs aren't worth much if you're not willing to at least suffer a bit for them. And I wish it weren't this way. I, I wish that... It, it didn't incite the anger of those who, for whatever reason, want to go the way of compliance and, and are very threatened and need to control other people. You have to think like I do. And, and, and they, don't, they won't rest until you've acquiesced or you've renounced whatever it is you think that's different than what they think. They don't care about building. They don't care about people's understanding or, or helping people understand things, you know, which we're all learning as we go, but they don't, it's not about teaching and helping people grow. It's just about being right. It's about getting someone to conform. You got to be willing to take that hit and not become the person who lashes out mindlessly and angrily because someone took a shot at you. That's hard. I only tell you this because been there, done that. It sucks, but it is the right way to approach things. And I promise you that as you share what you have to share with people, if you speak the truth with love and you allow people to come to the truth at their own pace and their own understanding without any requirement of, well, I guess we can be friends once you change your tune. Just lose the need to win and watch those minds start to open. People will be better for associating with you. People will be better for having sought out your point of view. They may not even agree with you. But if they trust you enough that they would ask you, hey, what do you think about this? That's a pretty good indication you're doing something right. Just keep it up. Got to take a quick break. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113. I'm sharing this article from Academy of Ideas on civil disobedience. And this is pretty thought-provoking stuff. I really hope you'll go to my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Watch the video if it's more comfortable for you to watch, but read the article. Take a look at it and, and see what it takes to be an individual dissident who acts as a motivating example for larger movements of civil disobedience. There's a quote here from Frederick Gross. Disobey. This is from the, the book Disobey. So many others are better qualified, more competent, and effective than me. A throng of good-willed souls is projected onto the horizon, ready to rise so that I can retreat more easily. Another will act instead of me, and so much better. Lose that mindset. You're more than capable. Even if the role you play you think is kind of small, it's essential that you play that role. If that's what your conscience tells you you should be doing. Let's go to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. How are you today? Fantastic. Yeah, I kind of, you think, you, you know, I, I'm just thinking about all this, and our elections have become where, where uh, you know, it's not going to matter whether you're, you're a Republican, a Democrat, a Libertarian, a, uh, you know, conservative, or constitutionalist. It's, it's not going to matter anymore. Now it's going to be a hand-picked select people. I think they've been doing this to us longer than we think. Oh, yeah. What's your take? I, I didn't realize. Look, I, I've thought that the election, I thought that the political system and the election system was rigged long ago. But I don't mean rigged in the sense that it was always going to be this candidate or that candidate. It's just that no matter who you elect, the status quo always seems to endure. You know, the state still does business as usual. Not that much really changes. No, you're right. And, and I, think, I think it's now, it's not, I mean, <clears throat> until we get something changed. It's not going to be worth voting. Yeah, I mean, this is how Nancy Pelosi's been getting in all these years. Chuck Schumer. And, you, know, you can be as conservative as ever living in the state of New York. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. If you, you know, it's if, if the, if the popular vote is to go to those folks. Still going to go to the, the villain in the theater. I think it was Tom, Tom Woods who said, no matter who you vote for, you always get John McCain which I thought was a great illustration. Mitch McConnell. I think, you know, I think even Mitch McConnell, I, mean, I remember back when Hillary Clinton was, you know, um, going to shut down all the coal and Obama. Yeah. You know, but somehow the state of Kentucky was able to get Mitch McConnell back in. Like his eyes were so listening. And he, was, you know, coming back to the table again, he was, it's almost like he couldn't believe that he got in the way with it. But yeah, you're going to take it. going to take mass people to get together and show us a, 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 a form of force. You're going to need all this stuff to travel now on planes. You're going to have to get vaccinated. You're going to have to be tested in airports. It's all coming. Oh, I, I agree. No, I, I see it, too. Th- thanks for the call. Here's the thing. I don't have control over masses of people. I don't want control over masses of people. It's just not in my nature. I do have control over me. And that's that's why I, I'm trying to appeal to you on the individual level. If your conscience says, hey, I really shouldn't do this, or I, I don't want to do this, or I don't feel like it's right, 
listen to it. Don't squelch it. Don't turn up the music and drown it out. Now, the article here points out one of the first questions that a potential first mover faces is, okay, when is it right to disobey? That's a very rational kind of question to ask yourself. And for, while it's relatively easy to disobey when a movement of civil disobedience has already gained some momentum, in other words, when other people have already stuck their necks out, the initial dissenters face a very challenging predicament. Is disobedience worth the risk? I think about the gym owner in New Jersey who's been fined $1.2 million so far, arrested, issued at least 60 different citations, and still he keeps his gym open. I mean, the state of New Jersey has flexed some pretty considerable muscle against him, and he will not back down. Now, not everybody has their livelihood, you know, at risk. Not everybody is, is uh, being marched away in handcuffs, but this guy's done it. That takes courage to be one of those initial dissenters. And the article points out, has the act of, com- uh, has the act of obedience reached such immoral proportions that to be compliant is to be complicit in the destruction of society and in the harming of innocent life? That's one of the questions you have to ask yourself. At what point do I have to say, I cannot go with this? I would be willing to part company with so-called polite society and walk away from this. Everybody has to answer those questions for themselves, but the answer usually comes from within as a command from conscience. And then here's, here's Carl Jung again. This is from Civilization in Transition. The etymology of the word conscience tells us that it is a special form of knowledge. The peculiarity of conscience is that it is a knowledge of or certainty about the emotional value of the ideas we have concerning the motives of our actions. So consciousness is a felt state. It's an intuitive form of knowledge about the rightness or wrongness of an action. One of the most famous examples in history of an individual who relied on his conscience to direct him in acts of disobedience was Socrates. Socrates was commanded by the 30 tyrants to arrest an innocent man and to bring him to his death. Socrates, however, did not practice blind obedience, even if the commands came from tyrants who held the power of life and death over him. Socrates instead listened to his conscience. This is from the Apology. The 30 sent for me, says Socrates, and ordered me to bring Leon the Salminian to be put to death. However, I, however, showed again by action, not in word only, that I did not care a whit for death, but that I did care with all my might not to do anything unjust or unholy. For that government with all its power did not frighten me into doing anything unjust. I simply went home. (laughs) So in going about our day-to-day life, our conscience tends to speak quietly, and often the messages it sends are ambiguous. But this can be used to one's advantage when making the decision as to whether disobedience has now become the right choice. For as Young points out, while many of life's moral dilemmas only elicit a whisper from our conscience, there are times when our conscience speaks so loudly and clearly that it almost seems to be the voice of a god, or as Jung writes in Civilization and Transition, quote, since olden times conscience has been understood by many people less as a psychic function than as a divine intervention. Indeed, its dictates were regarded as the voice of God. This view shows what value and significance were and still are attached to the phenomenon of conscience. Conscience commands the individual to obey his inner voice, even at the risk of going astray. So if your conscience commands us to stop obeying unjust laws, and if each time we do obey, we experience feelings of loathing and guilt, 
Well, then we face a difficult choice. Either we obey our conscience and become a dissident, or we continue to obey the commands of tyrants and become a traitor to ourself. The men and women whose inner voice speaks loudest in the face of a rising tyranny are those most likely to step forward as dissidents. And it's when a common vibration of conscience rings out through a society that civil disobedience becomes possible. First, the call of conscience is answered by a relative few, but these few serve as the example for others. And whether enough people follow to create a movement of civil disobedience is contingent on how much a populace still desires freedom compared to what degree the populace has been psychologically subdued by the fear, hate, and confusion that is sown by the propaganda of tyrants. Now, if, however, tyranny comes knocking in the society in which we live, and if our conscience then issues the command that we should stop being complicit in the crime of obedience, we should keep in mind the following comment by Henry David Thoreau. Disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. The obedient must be slaves. I hope you understand. This this is not me trying to encourage you, hey, Let's go be troublemakers. <laughs> What's the quote from Firefly? I aim to misbehave. But I tell you with, with all my heart, there is a time when it is correct to disobey. And there's a time where doing so is, is not only the right thing to do, but it, it may be the thing that you were born to do. It may be the time, that may be your, the finest moment of your life when you choose to stand in that uncomfortable place, perhaps alone, but you serve as a shining example of someone whose conscience has not failed or been put to sleep. May we be the kind of individuals who are prepared for that possibility. Not because it makes us great and laudable and people are going to make statues of us and sing songs about us, but simply because it's the right thing to do and we will enjoy the privilege and the comfort of being at peace with our conscience, the companion we carry with us through our entire lives and beyond. This is The Brian Hyde Show.